Well, good afternoon. But it still feels like morning. It's like jet lag. It may be afternoon where you landed, but you're still morning time. And I'm still morning time. Ian, may I move this over? Thank you. Brothers and sisters, the Lord has so providentially blessed us. This morning, I receive a text from Pastor Aaron Mueller, who just showed up. And his word to me at the time was, their AT&T service is intermittent, really failing. And so they had a great deal of difficulty uh, using Facebook to live stream. He was just letting us know. Why do that? Because they care. They care. So wonderful, God bless church, St. James Lutheran. Been so kind. And then our dear brother failed us getting through the door to turn on these lights. And so Pastor was texted and he just showed up and Adam brought the key and now we have lights. The Lord is good. I hope you see that. And for those that I didn't get a chance to, I hope you have blessed Merry Christmas. And here we are in 2022, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, 2022. What hath God in store for us? Good things. Many, several good things that I'm very excited about and thankful for. Let's, let me just say this too, say it this way. You have known me from the get-go, aside from maybe two sermons out of Romans, and we embarked on the blessed gospel of John. And that's what you have had preaching through John. Well, today we shift this incredible epistle of the Apostle Paul to a church he had never met in Colossae. We call it Colossians. Stand with me as I read from Colossians chapter 1, the first 12 verses. But today our point is to give a comprehensive overview of what the Spirit has gifted the church with through Paul in this letter. The breathed out word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, the holy ones, and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, do you perceive how this apostolic greeting resonated with the ironic blessing? May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, grace and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, the Greek word there is slave, who is a faithful servant or diakonos, minister of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, forbearance, and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Oh, blessed Lord, how we love you and thank you for the gifting to your people, the church, these incredible letters and epistles designed to shape us and form us and fit us for heaven. As we make the shift from gospel to epistle, as we make the shift from a book of almost pure indicatives of what you achieved through thy son to an epistle that beautifully illustrates the grammar of the gospel, the movement from indicative to imperative, from what God has done to the therefore this is how we live. Bless, I pray, not just the reading, but bless today the overview of this gifted church to your people. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I will confess I had not expected this, but I find myself as excited for however the Lord has it that I should preach through Colossians, for I'm very mindful that his hand may move me at any moment. And I'm excited about that too. But I find it amazing that I'm as excited about Colossians as I was about John. And that's saying something if you know my heart. Let's consider this blessed, God-breathed-out epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, written by Paul while a prisoner in Rome, 
most likely in the year of our Lord, 62, and was delivered by a fellow servant of Jesus named Tychicus. We will meet him in the fourth chapter. Ancient Colossae. Ancient Colossae was a prominent city in the southern part of the western portion of what we today would call Turkey, Asia Minor, in its time. Colossae was 128 miles, is what the information shows, about a five-day walk from Ephesus to Colossae. Ephesus on the seacoast, close Colossae in the interior. Colossae was located, and is located, in the Lycus River Valley of West Central Asia Minor, and was one of the most important cities in its vicinity in the 4th and the 3rd century B.C., before Christ. It apparently was a thriving textile center, so much so that a particular type of quality dark red wool was known in its day as Colossian wool. Its geographical location contributed mightily to the rise in prominence for the city in that it was at the crossroads of two well-traveled highways. One highway east-west from Ephesus, deeper into the interior, passed through Colossae. Another highway north-south passed through Colossae. So it was rather like St. Louis. It was at a, a hub at an intersection, majorly connecting an awful lot. Now here is the point. Because you might say, what's the point of that geography? Get here. Well, the point of that geography is what exactly transpired in the city that was at this kind of an intersection. For the empire of Rome was highly mobile, and if you know your history, Rome often practiced the relocation of people groups rather frequently, which meant that Colossae was very diverse ethnically, religiously. Josephus, Jewish historian, tells us about 213 BC, some 2,000 Jewish families had been relocated to the vicinity of Colossae. So there was a Jewish presence, which helps us understand one of the key theological problems the church was having. So not unlike ancient Corinth, this diversity of population and exposure to the latest ideas coming from the highways and movement of people back and forth, Colossae was a place of homogenized religion, homogenized philosophical viewpoints, all mixed together. And knowing this helps explain the false teaching that was affecting the Colossian Christians that Paul will reference, and which gave rise to the Spirit of God breathing out an epistle 
through the imprisoned apostle to a church he had never met, he had never been at. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, so how did he learn the church? It's wondrous growth, he cites that, and yet the issues it faced. Well, there was apparently in Ephesus when Paul was there for three years, Acts chapter 19, preaching and teaching, there was a man named Epaphras who was from Colossae, five days walk. He must have been in Ephesus. This is surmising. But somehow Epaphras, a Colossian, brought the gospel that had been planted in Ephesus five days east to Colossae. And thus the church was wondrously birthed by extension as the disciples went forth preaching and teaching and witnessing. It wasn't a church planted by an apostle. So Epaphras went back home. The Spirit of God births a church of called out ones. And then Epaphras subsequently journeys to Rome. That's not a small undertaking. Journeys to Rome to talk to the imprisoned apostle. We text Pastor Aaron today. Can we get back here to turn the lights on? Epaphras, how did he learn? He finds out Paul's in Rome. He travels there seeking to enlist the apostles' help in the uh, issues that the church is beginning to face. Sorry, my pages got out of order. So the epistle opens with two prayers, we read them, in which the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. Paul says he has learned all this from Epaphras, learned of the Colossians' love for Christ and love for one another. He prays rejoicing in the faith, love, and hope that exists in this relatively young church. He prays that the believers at Colossae would be filled with knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But Paul's prayer is that these intangible realities for which he prays will result in lives, behavior, action, words, that please the Lord in all respects as they grow in steadfastness, patience, and joyful thanksgiving to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he frames it in the second or third verse. And Paul immediately then presents a, a Christological hymn, placing Christ Jesus front and center as supreme over all things. This incredible Christological passage, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, asserts Christ's supremacy over both creation and new creation. Now let me pause. 
it's going to be, I think, almost impossible for you to even track unless you've got your Bible open. Because we're going to fly through the hole seeking to see what has God said through this book. So I highly, highly encourage that. So chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Christ's supremacy over both creation, new creation. And while those six verses in chapter 1 is the Christological high point of the epistle, it would be a mistake to miss the incredible degree to which Colossians is filled with really the New Testament's most glorious expression of Christology, which is interesting to me. John exalts the deity pre-existence of the Christ. Colossians is a major, if not the major, Christological Christ-exalting epistle in the New Testament. In fact, it's helpful to note that Colossians is the sister epistle to Ephesians, even as Romans is the sister epistle to the Galatians. And while the central theme of Ephesians is the church, the central theme of Colossians is Christ. So the first half of the hymn in chapter 1 presents Jesus as the true image of God in human form as a man. Jesus shares in the very identity of the one true creator God. For by him all things, both visible and invisible, that's a singularly unique descript of what Christ created, all things, visible and invisible, were created. Consequently, all authorities, spiritual and earthly, were created by him and for him. That includes Pritzker, Biden, Trump, Harris, all authorities, that's just the earthly, were created by him, for him, established by him. It is in Jesus Christ that we discover the very author and king of all creation. Furthermore, in Jesus, God has established a new humanity, or in the language of Paul elsewhere, Jesus is the second Adam, establishing in true fullness God's designed Adamic reign, reign through the first Adam. But in the person of he who is both God and man. And it is through a reconciliation and peace achieved through the blood of the cross. That's chapter 1 verse 20. And in the death of Christ's fleshly body. Chapter 1 verse 22 that the Colossians are reconciled to God, being presented by God 
holy and blamelessly beyond reproach because of the hope of the gospel proclaimed in all creation of which Paul was made a minister. The word is diakonos, servant, minister. So Christology is the theological heart of Colossians and like the spokes of an old wagon wheel, all other themes radiate out from it. And furthermore, the Christology of Colossians is eminently, intensely practical. Here is a Christology for living. Life. Here is a Christology for marriages. Here is a Christology for Christian homes. Here is a Christology for parenting. Here is a Christology for the master-slave relationship from which we can extrapolate employee or employee relationships, but particularly master-slave relationship. The preaching movement from John's Gospel to Paul's Christ-exalting epistle to Colossae is thus fitting, I believe, as a pastor for this church because we have seen the glorious indignity of what God has done in Christ he moves his people always from indicative to imperative. Here is how you live out the indicative. Chapter 1, verse 24 through the fifth verse of chapter 2, Paul shifts. He shifts from the two prayers and the Christ exalting him, and he shows how he rejoices in his sufferings, for they are for the exalted Christ, filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. A fascinating phrase. That the apostle, breathed by Spirit, says that his sufferings in some way were filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. We, we'll pick up on that in weeks ahead. Paul then describes God's stewardship to him to preach the word of God, the mystery previously hidden but now revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Paul's ministry amidst suffering through proclamation and admonishment and teaching to present every man complete, full, mature in Christ. Indeed, eternal is the glory of God's mystery, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now in chapter 2, verses 6 through 23, after this Christ 
focused foundation is laid, Paul then addresses the issues pressuring the Colossian church, pressuring them to turn from Christ alone, the hope of glory. And from the text of chapter 2, which I have now in front of me, from the text, it would seem the Colossians were being pressured by, by what has been described as both a mystical polytheism. Polytheism? We should ask some of the young people. Poly, many gods, many gods. So polytheism, the concept that there are many gods, they were being pressured by a mystical polytheism and pressured to observe certain laws of the Torah. Torah, Hebrew for law, the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. So an interesting mixture, syncretic mixture together of mystical polytheism with you've got to keep the laws of the Torah. Now these pagan, untouched by the gospel of Christ towns of the Roman world had multiple gods to which they prayed and worshipped. Indeed, gods and goddesses that they, they would make petitions to, like a prayer wheel in India, petitions to, prayers to, sacrifices to, fests, too, for protection from floods, disease, famine, calamity. So, so when a local festival was occurring in the streets of Colossae, as throughout the Roman world, there would perhaps be a, and was many times, a procession through the town with horns and drums and shouts and chants in which the gods or a god were being honored and placated. And what happens if some such a group of families don't partake, don't join? Because now they are worshipers of Jesus Christ. Tongues, tongues begin to wag where were they? They're too good for us. Goody two-shoes. Atheists. They don't belong from all our gods. They are being marginalized. And, and perhaps it became with difficulty that food purchases were then made. When Rome burned, what did they do to the Christians? Burned them. It's obviously the Christians. Readers of Pilgrim's Progress will recognize the mortal danger of Vanity Fair for any pilgrim that refuses the king's dainties. It's perilous to your health to not look, smell, sound, behave, engage, with them in all that they engage in in Vanity Fair. 
So Paul's appeal is to the exalted Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Furthermore, God is head. This is verse 15 of chapter 2. God is head over all rule and authority, making public display of the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them through Christ his Son. But there is more. That's bad enough. That can affect your job, your pocketbook, your ability to buy food, your welcome in social settings. But there is also pressure from Judaism. Jews or Messianic Jews who are still entangled keeping all or some of the laws of Torah and specifically identified by Paul, kosher diets was a big issue. Observance of sacred days, festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, festivals, new moons, Sabbath days, circumcision. These were also being stirred into the syncretic pot of mystical polytheism with these Jewish pressures to conform to the laws of Torah. And Paul summarily describes these in verse 21 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 21. He describes them saying such things as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This was hitting the church in Colossae. So the Colossians are being told that to fully follow Jesus, you have to also keep the laws of Torah. You better have your Sabbath understanding correct. Instead, Paul argues that all these things were mere shadows of what was to come. Mere shadows. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Mere shadows because the substance belongs to Christ. The substance of all these laws in the Old Testament belonged, belongs to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all the laws of Torah. So Torah and all its laws pointed to the now exalted and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Well, chapter 3 Verse 1 through 17, I think that is the full of, no, not quite, almost. Paul goes on to explain what it means to be a Christian. That belonging to Christ is to have been raised up with Christ. This is Romans 6 language. Buried with Christ, raised with Christ. Belonging to Christ means having been raised up with Christ. Christ. Christians have died to this life and their life is now hidden with Christ in God. Wow. 
Our granddaughters love to play hide and seek. Jen and Lily, that's a favorite thing, hide and seek. Look at the beauty of this text, that our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. Oh, glory, glory, this joyful, eternally momentous phrase that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Thou art safe, eternally secure, dear child of God. It matters not the diagnosis because your life is hidden with Christ in God. The valley of the shadow of death holds no fear nor danger for my life is hidden with Christ in God. The fears and anxieties that assail us have no hold on the one whose life is hidden with Christ in God. Blessing, blessing, comfort, and peace. Meditate, people, meditate on such gospel gems. They are given to secure us when it feels like our rock is ebbing, but it's not. It is thy sea. So Paul then turns the Colossian Christians toward the glorious risen Christ, now seated at the right hand of God. Chapter 3, and look at verse 10. Christians are to set their minds on things above, to keep seeking things above. And it doesn't mean just think about heaven, though that's not bad. But that's not the intent. The believers are being challenged to live now as new men. Chapter 3, verse 10. As new men, like the kind of saved new men and women that they will one day become. Say it another way. Paul challenges the Colossian Christians to live today the way they will live in heaven. What an astounding thought. To live today the way I'll live in heaven. For I'm now a citizen of heaven. Talk today like I will talk in heaven. What a thought. Behave today as I will in glory. Walk today as I will walk in heaven. My words in conversation today as they will be in glory. 
Now, the problem that Paul addresses in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, is that many times we walk, we talk, we look, we sound like the pagans around us. But that's not supposed to be. We have been raised up with Christ. Let our lives, our behavior, our words, our speech, our faces. What did God approach with Cain? Why has your face fallen? Our faces display what they will display in heaven. Well, chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Paul uses the imagery of how they once walked. Knows the past tense, nature. This is how you used to do it. This is how the world does it. But it's not how Christians do it. Immorality. Impurity. You know, immorality is acting out the impurity of the thoughts. Immorality, impurity, passions... The word passions comes from the Greek pathos, makes sense, which is the soul's diseased condition out of which various lusts rise. Immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry, anger, wrath. Malice, the intent to harm. Slander, saying things you have no right to talk about to people who have no right to hear. Slander, abusive speech. Well, what's abusive speech? Speech that wasn't designed to give grace to the hearers. As Proverbs describes, the words of an angry man are like thrustings of the sword. No, that's how pagans live. That's not how children of God live. But Paul says, this dead in, man, dead in sin man died in Christ's death. And the man or woman in Christ has been raised up with Christ. You are a new creation hidden with Christ in God. And so then he turns in chapter 3 to a description of what does the new humanity look like? What do the children of God look like? How do they behave? How do they talk? Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Gentleness, it's all verse 12, 13, 14, 15. Gentleness, patience or forbearance towards others. Forgiveness, love. <laughs> Chapter 3, verse 15. New creations, whether male or female, hidden with Christ in God, are marked by peace, 
peace. I described to in the presence of one this past week, and the image helps me see it clearly. I've said before, but on our honeymoon, like the Ozarks, we rented a motorboat, good-sized motor. Tammy said, I'll control the throttle, and she did. Pedaled to the metal for the next hour, hour and a half, burned through the whole tank of gas at high speed, and oh, what a wake it left behind. What is the wake that you have left behind this week? What did it look like? How did it impact people that love? See, a man or woman hidden with Christ in God will be marked Chapter 3, verse 15, by peace. And verse 15, by thankfulness. So you can't be a grumbler. What? You can't be a grumbler. Always seeing the half-empty glass, not recognizing the half-full glass. That's what I tried to do for you today. It's I look at the blessing of God through the grace-filled heart of Pastor Aaron Mueller and this church, letting us know he didn't have to let us know that the internet wasn't working well. He didn't have to respond to a text. Thankfulness, thankfulness in such a new creation in Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 3, look at it. It's a key component. In such a new creation, hidden with Christ in God, the word of Christ will richly dwell, resulting in musical joy in the heart toward God. <laughs> Yesterday we made merry with friends. Today we will read our Bible reading plan for January 1 and January 2. What is your plan? Let the word of Christ richly, richly dwell in you, resulting in musical, harmonious joy in the heart of the one who's hidden with Christ in God. Now, track with me. Paul then turns in verse 18 of 3, considering interpersonal relationships and what the new man or woman in Christ looks like there. What impact does this theology have on behavior is the question. Verses 18 and 19 if you understand who you are in Christ, it will majorly impact your marriage. Look at wives will be subject to their husbands, knowing that that is fitting, appropriate in the Lord. Husbands will love their wives and not be embittered towards them. Now, if I'm a grumbling man, 
focusing on her faults and her failings and how she dishonors me, I'm not behaving like a new creation. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Why? Because the Lord, the Father, is pleased with that kind of behavior. That's why you want to please your Father in heaven. And fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. How does one exasperate? By using anger to beat them down. And eventually the child loses heart. But a new creation kind of man doesn't behave out of anger. And he doesn't cause children who are, how does it say, losing heart. And then, verse 22 through 5, he turns to slaves and says, Slaves, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with just external service as those pleasing men. You know, when he's watching, do the thing, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of your inheritance as a slave. He's talking slaves. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. As a slave, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now chapter 4, verse 1, he then turns to masters. Look at it. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. <laughs> well, that's a, well, tamer of fast thoughts and passions. Don't forget, master, that you have, master of that slave, that you too have a master in heaven. Now, observe something here. Observe how the gospel of Jesus Christ reshapes all of life. How being a man or woman whose life is hidden with Christ in God reshapes all my relationships. Because Christ is creator and Lord, and those hidden with Christ in God are becoming daily more like Christ because they are allowing the word of God to dwell in them richly. And they are submitting to the hand of Christ on their shoulder, shaping and forming them. Incredibly then, 
Paul makes application of the radical transformation Christ brings to his children that could not have possibly been missed in Colossae. Chapter 4, verse 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, beloved brother, faithful diakonos, faithful servant, and faithful douloi, slave, uh, in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. Look at verse 9. And with Tychicus, another man is named Onesimus. Onesimus, a runaway slave from Colossae. And Paul, in verse 9, calls Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. You'll recognize another letter by Paul to Philemon, the master of the runaway slave, Onesimus. Turn with me quickly to Philemon, just to your right in front of Hebrews, a short one-chapter book. Let's glance at this as it illustrates the flow of Colossians. Philemon Verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment in Rome, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you but now is useful both to you and to me. And I've sent him back to you in person with Tychicus, to Colossae, that is, my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he, Onesimus, your slave, Philemon, perhaps he, for this reason, parted for a while that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, how, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? And if then you regard me a partner, accept him as me. But if he has wronged you in any way, well, Philemon's pocketbook has suffered since Onesimus stopped contributing to the work. Paul says, but if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe to me 
even your own self as well. How? Because I preached in Ephesus and the Epaphrodite Ephesus and Epaphras heard the gospel and Epaphras took it back to Colossae and you heard the gospel from one I had given it to. Verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. <sighs> Application just fills the air. Theology is never for its own sake. Theology is for life, for living, and it makes as radical an impact on an institution of slavery then as today. But note, Paul does not come against slavery. He undercuts it by the slave and the master owner being one whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. That is radical. Colossians should have an equally radical impact on your marriage, on your behavior at home, on your work, on your speech, on your thoughts. Colossians captures the heart of true heart of Puritanism, which was a theology for life, not just academics, but it should impact our marriages with joy and Christ. It should impact our parenting with joy in Christ. It should impact our church life with joy in Christ. Because theology, for its own sake, is dead. Theology is to impact who we are as those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. So this is a rich, rich book and brings us from the glorious indignity of what hath God done in the Gospel of John too. This is how it should impact every arena in which we live. Let me pray. Father, thank you for breathing out these glorious epistles that show us the therefore. That show us how, having been chosen by you from eternity past, and called and justified, and being sanctified, but how that sanctification should look. That my speech should be changing into heaven-like speech and my behavior changing into heaven-like behavior. 
that my husband or wife should look at me and think they are more and more like Christ today than they were six months ago. And this should invade and pervade our interpersonal relationships here. And yes, it should impact our lives out there in Vanity Fair. We don't want, O oh Lord, to look like them or sound like them or talk like them. But we want to walk and talk as those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. And this is the heart of the prayer in the first chapter, that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Humbly do we come to the throne of grace, have thine own way, our blessed Lord. In Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. Scott.